I'm joined on the line now by my usual Monday guest. It is, of course, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how are you doing today? I'm not bad, thanks. How are you? Ah, I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. So let's uh, let's start a conversation today around e-bikes. I mean, we're starting getting to this, uh, you know, heart of spring, if you will. More and more people looking to break out their bikes and get out on the road. And uh, the reason this is coming up is a Vancouver man who was fined for operating an electric scooter without a license or insurance has since lost his appeal to the BC Supreme Court, despite the fact that ICBC doesn't actually provide coverage for that type of vehicle. So uh, let me just start by getting a a little bit of a sense from you about the confusion that surrounds this this law i mean it, you can't get insurance for uh, an e-bike yet you know you can still get fined for not having insurance yeah and for not having a valid driver's license and it ends up creating so much confusion for drivers because they don't understand you know the difference between things that are required to be insured things that are actually insurable and things where you're required to have a driver's license but not have insurance and those are actually three separate categories um, of vehicles with a fourth category being you don't have to have a driver's license or insurance for certain types of electric bikes and none of these regulations around this are made clear in any of the documentation produced by ICBC. If you call ICBC and you say, oh, I have this bike, do I need insurance or do I need a license? You're gonna get a different answer every time you call because even ICBC staff aren't sure about what is required for each different type of thing. And so it's only when you end up getting charged that you realize you were in the wrong and, that, and that's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I just have a real problem with uh, being told that I need to have insurance for something that I've called to try to get insured and was told, well, we don't have insurance for that type of vehicle. I mean, it just seems kind of uh, ridiculous that you can get fined um, if you try to take the proper steps that are told you can't do them, but yet somehow, um, you know, are, are facing uh, consequences as a result of that. So what needs to happen, I guess, to really make things more clear, uh, you know, make things more black and white here. I mean, obviously this legislation needs to be addressed in some way, shape or form. These, these rules, sorry, excuse me, around e-bikes and, and, and e-scooters. So what, what do you think needs to be done? I mean, obviously it has to be revisited and, and try to make things a little bit clearer. Yeah, obviously making it more clear is step one, but also, you know, ICBC needs to update their policies. If they are not going to be insuring e-bikes, then they need to change the Insurance Motor Vehicle Act so that insurance is required for e-bikes, so that people who are unable to purchase insurance aren't punished because ICBC isn't selling a product that it's mandatory to obtain through them. Um, so we need some changes to legislation as well. And I think a public education campaign is a good idea so that people are aware of, of what the different obligations are um, and what they need to know if they're making that financial investment for e-bikes. This also applies to the e-bike companies because a lot of them market these bikes on the basis of the fact, and, and this case was one example of mm -hmm. that, that you don't need a license or insurance. And that might not actually be the case. And so I think the companies need to be made aware of what the requirements are. There needs to be an audit of whether or not they're complying with those requirements. And there should be some restrictions on advertising things that aren't legally true when it comes to the e-bike industry. Do you, do you foresee this becoming a, a maybe a hotter topic here as we go over this summer? I mean, a lot more people, I think, are going to be trying to find alternative ways to, uh, you know, get outside and enjoy the outdoors. And, and when we're looking at e-bike sales right now, from what I understand, they're up quite a bit here over the course of the first quarter or so of uh, 2020. So I expect that there's going to be a lot more of these vehicles on the road. And with more of these vehicles, I would assume would be coming more uh, opportunities for these kinds of confusing situations to arise and people getting tickets that they probably feel that they should not be receiving. 
Oh, definitely. There's going to be a lot of uh, people who are purchasing these as well to try and avoid, you know, the social distancing problems that arise on public transportation. They're an affordable option um, that doesn't require purchasing a vehicle, but does allow you to travel faster and with more ease than a traditional bicycle. So a lot of people are considering this as, you know, a green option to get around the city. But it's not really an option if the legislative and the policy um, requirements are not properly in place to facilitate the use of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I think it's going to be an interesting uh uh, situation to unfold here over the course of the summer because like I said I expect uh, a few more of these issues to arise and several judges in, in British Columbia have noted that you know there is this need to update provincial laws regarding electric modes of transportation really across the board and we're talking in e-bikes and e-scooters here specifically but there's also you know segways and hoverboards and electronic skateboards and um, you know there's so many other of these products on the market there really needs to be some clarity surrounding uh, what you are and are not allowed to do I think with, with a lot of these new tools that are out there so uh, I think it's going to be interesting I mean is, is there a, a massive difference, I guess, in your opinion, between how uh, someone would um, uh, look at a, an e-scooter and, and look to operate those as opposed to something like an electronic skateboard? I mean, is there are they all sort of falling under the same uh, umbrella, I guess, if you will, in your mind? In my mind, they do fall under this sort of umbrella of things that are, as of yet, really unregulated and unaddressed by legislation and ICBC, and something that we need to actively and quickly address through our legislation and our policy to protect people from being ticketed, to protect the public from being involved in accidents with people who are uninsured unintentionally, um, and to ensure that there's greater clarity for everybody who wants to find a green alternative to um, traditional methods of transportation. All right, well, uh, I think that pretty much wraps up everything on, on that front right now, and, and we'll just have to see when that is indeed addressed. I assume there's going to be more light brought to that issue here as we get deeper and deeper into the summer, so we'll probably revisit that uh, at some point down the road. But, uh, of course, a conversation we've really been having a, a number of different times is how is B.C. provincial courts going to really start moving forward and getting back to uh, some sort of a, a model that we saw before COVID-19 came and disrupted everything, right? So uh, they announced some plans, B.C. provincial courts, announced some steps last week to start moving towards that reopening process um, and it's going to now introduce mandatory pre-trial conferences for most adult and youth criminal trials and preliminary inquiries as well as for family and small claims trials and it's also starting to make you know more telephone sentencing hearings available for some non-urgent out-of-custody matters and resuming other case conferences and family and small claims cases by again telephone or video conference so uh, just if you can maybe put that into a little bit more layman's terms for me how is the bc government or bc provincial court moving towards reopening here can you maybe explain how this is different than than what would normally happen at, at the court system well, as one of the things that we had talked about before as one of the suggestions I had actually appears to be happening, which is for simple matters where the prosecution and the defense are largely in agreement about what the sentence should be and where there's going to be a plea, the court is now going to allow those matters to proceed by telephone. So nobody has to go to court. Everything can be done by phone. Documents with conditions, if there are going to be any conditions imposed, can be emailed to the uh, individual directly from the courthouse so that they can confirm that they received them and have notice of their conditions. Um, and this is a great use of existing technology to resolve a significant portion of the backlog. 
the court recognized that there were 4% of cases scheduled for trial that are actually going to trial when trials get around to happening. So this is a way to clear out a large number of those cases because what that's telling me is 96% of cases are being resolved without a trial, which means 96% of the backlog potentially created by COVID-19 can now be addressed through a simple telephone hearing that is being done um, with the prosecution, the defense, and the accused all on the phone. Man, when we're talking at 96%, I mean, that is that is a massive number, right? That's, uh, well, only 4% of that, that are in, in up in the air, I guess, right? And waiting for things to really get back to our quote-unquote so-called normal. Um, I guess, do you anticipate some hiccups here as they start to roll this process out? Uh, you know, obviously, there's always concerns around technology and, and hiccups that can be seen as a result of that. But, I mean, what, what is your prediction, I guess, for how smoothly this uh, this is going to roll out? I think the telephone um, appearances is going to be very smooth because we were already doing this in very limited circumstances. Um, They've just expanded the circumstances in which this is allowed to be done. So we're using existing technology in a more expansive way to resolve a larger number of files and protect social distancing. And I think this is going to go off without a hitch. They're also accommodating counsel's schedule so that if a matter is not available, if a lawyer is not available because um, they have a trial and they can't, you know, just be available for a phone appearance. They are scheduling the phone appearances for times that court wouldn't ordinarily sit, um, which allows further opportunities to resolve matters and increases efficiency because you're using more of those hours of the day to get things sorted out. It sounds like uh, something that if it does go well and it does kind of go smoothly, that this could be something that might be more, um, you know, ideal on, on a permanent basis moving forward. If, if it is going to have that big of a, uh, an impact on, on relieving some of the backlog that we're seeing of, of these caseloads, um, it sounds like something that's probably going to be looked at and considered for, uh, you know, permanent inclusion in the process moving forward. Would you anticipate that as well, depending on, on how well things go? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, the more you have cases that are proceeding, say, at 8.30 or 9 o'clock before the courtroom opens its doors at 9 o'clock, the more matters are knocked off the list and the more court time is remaining for those that actually have to take place in person in front of a judge. So it's going to maximize efficiency and to create this as a permanent solution going forward is going to carry those efficiencies forward. And the court also released over the weekend its report of how many full-time hours for judges they have and they're still down about um about 20 full-time hour equivalents for judges which means basically one (laughs) one uh, 20 judges short of what they need um so we have a huge need in our court for more judges and this frees up judicial time by taking advantage of time that judges are sitting in the courthouse not deciding things anyway Mm mm-hmm well, Kyla, uh, always appreciate you taking the time to come on and speak to me. Always interesting, and um, definitely look forward to doing it again next week. Hope maybe we'll have even more details about how things will start to roll out by then. So we'll continue having these conversations. Thanks so much. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Awesome. That was Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee.